Welcome to Midcast, everyone, an interview series featuring dissenting voices the establishment would rather silence. I'm your host, Manar Adli, founder and editor-in-chief of Mid Press News. Now, we recently launched our citizen activist campaign. As we face shadow banning and suppression from big tech giants, we're calling on you to join our campaign to sustain our anti-war watchdog journalism that challenges the status Quote, we've already crushed our campaign within the first week and a half, so help us continue for the next two and a half weeks. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about the scramble for Africa, more specifically, Ethiopia. Amid a bloody civil conflict that has killed over 50,000 civilians, the United States is now making ominous moves in the region, sending warships and thousands of soldiers to nearby nations like Yemen and Somalia. We have now head of USAID, Samantha Power, announcing that every option is on the table. Ethiopia's civil war is a problem U.S. troops can solve. That is a headline from the Washington Post as it pushes for U.S. intervention. And that's a quote, actually, from Admiral James Stavridis, former uh, Supreme Commander of NATO. So, Ethiopia, um, for the last couple of decades, has been the target of uh, U.S. meddling and support uh, since the Cold War. And today it is supporting the TPLF or the Tigrayan People's Front. Now, the current conflict, which has began um, in the year 2020 after members of the TPLF stormed a military base in Tigray region, of northern, uh, in the north of Ethiopia. Now, since then, the conflict has only escalated and has turned into a humanitarian catastrophe um, with international human rights organizations saying that genocide is taking place, major human rights abuses, and the region is facing famine. However, from a geopolitical perspective, it's clear that in the scramble for Africa, Ethiopia is a strategic region that the United States and NATO have their sights on to control, to prevent countries, including Ethiopia, from joining China's growing Belt and Road Initiative. So under the guise of now these new announcements of wanting to save the people of Ethiopia through a humanitarian intervention, We have the same so-called humanitarian interventionists from the Obama era that brought us neo-Nazis controlling Ukraine, the sectarian civil war in Syria, where Al-Qaeda is fighting on our side, and a failed state in Libya where slaves are being sold on the streets today. These same humanitarian interventionists are back in the Biden administration and calling for more war. So the question remains if we could soon see another Libya-style intervention in Ethiopia. So joining us today to discuss what is going on there, because it is quite a complex uh, situation, is Eugene Prisoner. Uh, Eugene has recently returned from Ethiopia on a reporting trip for Breakthrough News. And Eugene is a founder, and he's the host of Breakthrough News, and a former vice presidential candidate for the Party for Socialism 
and liberation. Eugene, thank you so much for joining us today. Minar, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Well, it's an honor to have you on here. You're doing a lot of really important work um, at Breakthrough News. And considering that you just returned from Ethiopia and we're following these headlines and calls for U.S. intervention, could you tell us first, what is the mainstream corporate media in the West getting wrong about the conflict in Ethiopia? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Sadly, the mainstream media in the United States seems to be getting almost everything wrong. First and foremost, starting with the issue of how this war even began. And we've seen a number of different outlets. In fact, we've seen most of the same outlets change their story on this issue multiple times. But, uh, you know, it's a not only a fact, but the TPLF themselves, the Grand People's Liberation Front, have admitted they, in fact, started the war. But since they started the war and they started the war for essentially no reasons, uh, essentially no good reason, that means that to admit that is to admit quite a bit of malfeasance because most of what happened afterwards can be linked to that decision. So we've seen the New York Times, we've seen Reuters, we've seen just about every mainstream media outlet at one point or another reference the idea that somehow the Ethiopian government started the conflict or in sort of a lesser version of that same argument that the Ethiopian government created an environment in the weeks ahead of November uh, the 3rd, early November 2020, fall of winter of 2020, that they created an environment that caused the war to happen. So I think that in and of itself is the original sin of most of the mainstream media coverage that's taking place um, on this issue, because almost everything else flows from that. Because since this has been such a destructive conflict, you have to ask, well, what was it being fought for in the first place? place. And if it turns out that it was a you know last ditch attempt by an entity that had been pushed out of power by the masses of people of Ethiopia to use a brutal war to restore themselves to ruling the country against the will of the vast majority of Ethiopians, well, this doesn't really look that good for the U.S. and the West to be supporting this and for these Western media outlets to have been taking a position that has essentially just been reprinting TPLF press releases in terms of how they are portraying the conflict. So I think that right there is is one big piece. And then the, the second major piece that they're getting wrong, which is relevant to what I just said about sort of TPLF press releases, is on every single piece of information and every single disputed fact in the context of the conflict, the Western media, along with Western governments, and to some degree the United Nations as well, are taking the TPLF uh, narrative of what took place as the gospel truth. And nothing is really being reported in a way that is allowing people to see that, you know, there are two sides and you could choose between one. Although I think in many of these, there aren't really two sides. It's relatively clear what's happening, but let's just say that's the case. It's being presented in a one-sided pro-TPLF way, which means that many things are being swept under the rug. The vast majority of human rights abuses that are being committed by the TPLF, uh, some of which we were able to talk to individuals who were telling us they'd been victimized by them, have just been completely whited out in the media. And to the extent the mainstream media is mentioning them, they mention them with all these caveats around how it's unconfirmed. The Ethiopian government says X, Y, Z, but then they will print something that the only confirmation is the TPLF, and then they will print that as if it's the gospel truth. So I think what we're seeing here is a combination of, you know, totally incorrect facts about the source of the conflict and why it's taking place, which is important for how people understand the context. And also in the individual facts, I think the media is getting it very, very 
distorted, if not outright wrong, on a range of different things because they're only willing to consider this one narrative coming from the belligerent forces that in fact started the conflict. Well, and it's clear that when that kind of effort takes place in pushing one certain narrative, it is to push uh, a humanitarian intervention. And today, uh, or not today, but in the last year, I should say, um, USAID, uh, being led by Samantha Powers, of course, has uh, dedicated over $150 million worth of humanitarian aid uh, to the Tigray people that are facing this crisis. So clearly there is a, a huge push by USAID, which as we know historically and from our reporting at MIT Press, is a front for the CIA. Um, tell us exactly what exactly is this conflict rooted in, as you pointed out, and where does you know, the CIA and USAID and people like Samantha Powers play a role in pushing that one-sided narrative to push humanitarian intervention? I think this conflict is rooted in a few basic things, but I think the easiest way to understand it is that it's rooted in the fact that the aftermath of the TPLF, which ruled the country from 1991 to 2018, the aftermath of them being removed from power has turned out in a way that has challenged the traditional U.S. approach to how to maintain what they would call a quote-unquote favorable regional balance of power in the Horn of Africa, which is geostrategically crucial. Now, in 2018, the TPLF forces were pushed out of power really by their own coalition partners because huge protests had been erupting over the country over the previous four years, really even a little bit before that, that had made the country so ungovernable because they were so corrupt, they were so brutal, they were so uh, just, just generally execrable that almost no one in the country wanted them there anymore. And it was clear that they were struggling to hold on to power. And so even some of their allies were like, look, y'all gotta go and they pushed them out. Now, at first the United States was welcoming this. And I think essentially more or less seeing that their 30-year support for the TPLF was also totally untenable. And they thought some of these people used to be allied with them, so maybe it'll be okay. The prime minister who come, became, who's the current prime minister who came in, Abiy Ahmed, he's given the Nobel Peace Prize. He's fed it in all the Western capitals. They're bringing him to the World Economic Forum. And I think what the U.S. thought is that more or less things would continue as is in Ethiopia and the broader strategy in the region would be basically fine, no big deal. But what has actually happened has been very different. And it's happened on a number of different fronts. One key element is the peace deal between Eritrea and Ethiopia I was signed in 2018, and that for sure is massively historic. These are two countries that have been locked in either, you know, a Cold War style conflict or a hot conflict for decades and decades and decades. There's a huge amount uh, of, of sort of, you know, historical bad blood there, if you will. And so for these two countries, not only to have a peace deal, but for those two peoples to really start a historic conversation around moving forward together um, in unity is something that was obviously dangerous to the United States that hates Eritrea for a variety of reasons, but the main reason being that Eritrea has, I think one easy way to think about this, similar to say Iran, uh, a sort of independent approach to foreign policy. And the US had already been isolating uh, Eritrea because Eritrea had opposed the US destabilization of Somalia, which was done with the backing of Ethiopia. They had opposed the isolation of Iran, 
when the United States was trying to aggressively isolate Iran in the context of the uh, so-called nuclear weapons issue, the manufactured issue that was there. And they also, you know, were willing to trade with North Korea, reaching out to countries like Cuba. I mean, these are things I'm drawing from WikiLeaks that the United States was saying in its diplomatic cables that they were very upset about and that they wanted to isolate Eritrea because of that. So now here you have this historic peace deal between Ethiopia and Eritrea that is you know, not only ending that isolation, but creating the possibility of actually both countries getting stronger by cooperating and working together and, and benefiting from the peace dividend that uh, was coming from this deal. And then you add into that, that then Somalia and the current president of Somalia, Farmajo, um, coming into that and creating a tripartite alliance that uh, was the three countries coming together to say, let's unify the Horn of Africa. We have a lot of shared history, obviously shared economic uh, 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 possibilities that working together can do more for all the countries. Rising tide can lift all boats. Let's move in that direction, unite the Horn of Africa to a greater degree, shared prosperity, so on and so forth. But from the point of view of the United States, this is extraordinarily dangerous because U.S. policy in the Horn of Africa, really going back to the 19, you could argue going back to the 1950s, but let's just, for the purposes here, let's say going back to the 1970s, has been 100% based on destabilizing the horn, keeping it divided, doing everything possible, if not to create, to at least stoke the flames of all the divisions that exist inside of the Horn of Africa to make sure that it remains divided and weak and not strong for, you know, to one, one real basic region reason, which is that this is one of the most geostrategically important regions. You're right there at the crossroads of global commerce in so many ways. Ethiopia, of course, sits in a critical uh, point vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Nile River. And there's also other things I can talk about in terms of the potential economic impact on U.S. imperialism and U.S. capitalism uh, of, you know, more unity, but even just these countries individually. And so now you have a situation where it's kind of a worst case scenario, because as we know from the U.S. national defense strategy, the most important thing for the U.S. right now is to maintain favorable re re regional balances of power in order to control the globe. And so now you have the possibility of a more independent, more united Horn of Africa on a geostrategic region, which means you could lose some level of control over a very important part of the world. And I think that that is the broader context. I think there's right. deeper things in there um, uh, that, that also speak to it. But I think that's the broader context of understanding why the U.S. has been willing to back this regime change effort by the TPLF, because I think they deeply fear the idea of independence, national sovereignty uh, in the Horn of Africa. And I think they fear that that's the direction things are going, and they'd rather have their proxy, the TPLF, back in the game to prevent that from happening. Well, I'm so glad that you kind of painted that picture from a broader strategic uh, perspective of U.S. militarism, because at MIT Press, we have been covering the crisis in uh, Yemen, where the United States has also created a humanitarian crisis in Yemen, stoking a sectarian, uh, somewhat civil war there, when it's really using the crisis in Yemen as um, a focal point to occupy the country and be able to control much of the movement um, in the Horn of Africa with the help of Saudi Arabia and the UAE. I mean, part of one of the major motivations and reasons why the United States is occupying uh, Yemen, for example, and Somalia is so that it can have control and access of what goes in and out of Ethiopia um, and use that as somewhat of a military buffer uh, to anti-imperialist countries in Africa, like Eritrea, as you pointed out. And so I think it's really important to understand this from a broader capitalist U.S. empire uh, perspective 
of economic interests. And you kind of, uh, you know, talked a little bit about that. Can you go into more detail about that? Absolutely. And, you know, I think that, and unfortunately people know so little about Africa, I think they have almost are like, why would they even do this? But when you think about Ethiopia specifically as, this, you know, in many ways, kind of the anchor economically of the broader horn of Africa, but even the broader horn, it's economically potentially a very powerful region. Now, it's underdeveloped region. There's enforced poverty, the legacy of imperialism, colonialism. But, you know, Ethiopia has 110 million people. I think there's 60 some million people in Somalia. There's four or five million people in Eritrea. And then you have to include Sudan and South Sudan in this because it's all sort of part of one um, broader regional economic zone and area. So the potential there on a number of different fronts is huge. Now, one that has been a particularly significant one, is hydropower. The Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, which is one of the main reasons that this conflict is even happening for many reasons. It's created a huge conflict between Ethiopia and Egypt. But the important point here is that it's going to be one of the largest hydropower projects on the planet. And it has the possibility to create huge amounts of clean energy, 100% clean energy that can help Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia, you know, even Uganda and Kenya, Sudan and South Sudan, all raise the level of development of their people in the context of not being able to, uh, in the context of not contributing to climate change. And why is that potentially dangerous? Well, in the context of co- uh, carbon markets and you know the jo- glo- overall global push towards clean, uh, clean energy, it creates a huge strategic advantage for Ethiopia and surrounding nations to be able to say, well, you can put stuff in our country that, you know, factories, whatever, that will be 100% clean energy, and you can use that from the point of view of carbon offsets, which certainly means that these Ethiopia especially, but these Horn of African nations have a very powerful chip vis-a-vis the United States, vis-a-vis Europe, uh, the traditional colonial imperial powers, because they have the ability to really use their green power potential in order to turn themselves into, in the same way you see countries that have a lot of oil are able to leverage leverage that, they'd be able to leverage green uh, power potential. And I think in and of itself, the West doesn't want to give anyone a chip that could potentially give them some level of control in the economic space, give them some level of influence with major corporations in the Western sphere that control the politics and so on and so forth. So that's one major issue is the emergence of Ethiopia and perhaps the broader region as a clean power hub, which sounds counterintuitive because all these imperialist countries say they want to do something about climate change. But the last thing they want to do is have nations of the global south be empowered over. And we see this with Bolivia and the issue of the batteries. I mean, we can see it all around the world, how developing nations that are willing to act independently, that have a lot of potential green power potential that the U.S. targets them for regime change because they don't want them to control um, major choke points of the new hopefully sustainable green 21st century economy on a global scale. So that's one. Two, you know, you could you mentioned China and the Belt and Road issue. You know, the, the issue of the potentiality for markets in the Horn of Africa is also a significant issue here. And when you think about what has become a very contested issue, and that is this issue of potential uh, privatization or really the increase in private, uh, the, the role of private companies in the telecom, you know, cell phone, data, internet markets in Ethiopia. There's one company there now, Ethio Telecom. It's a state-owned company. And they've now opened the market up a little bit. Safaricom, which is from Kenya, is now coming into the country. I believe they're going to start actually relatively soon um, with cell phone packages. Then there's a third license that's going to be put out there. I don't know who's going to get it, but prior to that, 
the first company that bid was MTN, which is a South African company. Safaricom, by the way, is actually owned by a South African company. But I say all that to say, well, doesn't that generally sound good? Aren't they actually expanding the, from the point of view of the U.S., I should say, that they're expanding capitalism, that they're expanding the market? But when you take one step back, Ethio Telecom is not working with AT&T and Verizon. They're working in Huawei. Safaricom is working with Huawei. MTN, who could come in, is working with Huawei. So one of the largest potential uh, markets for cell phones, for internet, for data, for all of the different technologies that come behind that, everything that's happening in Ethiopia right now is essentially handing that market over to collaborations between Africans and Chinese companies. Now, that for sure to the West is going to be a deep, deep challenge when, as we've seen and as we know, they're doing everything possible to stop China's technological giants from doing exactly this kind of thing. That's why they're attacking Huawei. So you can see right there as well, just even those kind of partnerships, the idea that these that a country like Ethiopia and other countries in the region will pursue them means the U.S. could be shut out of a lot of potential opportunities that exist there. And then on top of all of that, the sort of final piece, the third big piece, is because it is such a critical geostrategic trading zone. Right. And there are so many goods, agricultural, mineral, and others, that will come out through Somalia, through Eritrea, through Ethiopia on their way there, that it really creates the possibility that this could become an even more powerful sort of industrial trade powerhouse just through the combination of clean energy, geographical location, uh, potentiality is a very young population in every single country, but it's a huge population, that all those potentials coming together create a lot of, of, of potential power that could put the U.S. out there. So the, the way I look at it and the way I would summarize it with people is if you think about it like Iran, and I've mentioned it before, but I really do think that's a good framework for us to think about. Iran obviously is the most powerful, most developed co economy in that broader region. And clearly, uh, the ability of Iran to gain uh, more sort of, you know, uh, significant influence in the region is potentially huge because they have a lot to offer their neighboring countries. But the United States, of course, hates Iran because Iran is going against U.S. hegemony, even though it's not like Iran is, you know, a communist Soviet Union style country. And I think here we have countries, many of them, especially in Ethiopia, where there's a lot of capitalist rhetoric. The people who are running the country are definitely capitalists. They're definitely promoting markets and doing all these things, but they're willing to think and act independently. They're willing to put the interest of their own country and the region ahead of the broader interests of the U.S. and Europe. They're in a huge geostrategic region, and they also have a lot to offer to everyone in the region for why they would want to be able to work with them and in the world. So all of that together, and it creates a very dangerous situation for U.S. imperialism, where you could have a, a country and a region that is not only more independent, more nationally sovereign, but also very economically uh, powerful. And then that in and of itself starts to destabilize the broader U.S. ability to try to control a geostrategic region. So I think like what we see with the, the, the demonization of the pink tide countries in Latin America, what we see with the demonization of China and Asia, what we see with the isolation and demonization of Iran in the Middle East, it's a similar thing in the Horn of Africa, where the U.S. doesn't want to allow any region of the world to develop any sort of independent thinking, independently economic powerful force that can challenge the overall U.S. hegemony and set up for what they want to see. Wow. And that was, that's, I mean, that's the perspective that we want to provide to our readers and viewers um, at Mint Press. And you've been doing that through Breakthrough News uh, because within the mainstream corporate media, they have, there has been such a huge campaign to demonize Ethiopia to demonize uh, Eritrea and to kind of paint it 
in a way that African nations have been painted within mainstream corporate media, that they're backwards and behind and they're suffering from all these famine-like conditions and civil war because they've been fighting each other for hundreds, if not thousands of years, right? But the way that you kind of painted this picture that, you know, these countries have so much to offer. I mean, Africa is one of, you know, the greatest resource-rich regions in the world. And we have um, the United States waging what we are seeing as, uh, you know, a war on terror in a lot of these countries that you mentioned, like Sudan, um, in Mali, and in many of the countries of the Horn of Africa and in the Middle East. But really, it's really just a farce to keep these countries um, shackled, um, you know, shackled to colonialism, to modern day colonialism and U.S. hegemony to prevent these countries from really, uh, you know, becoming the potential that they could become uh, through their own resources, their own economies. Um, the United States really wants to keep them uh, stuck and held back. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about AFRICOM because AFRICOM is a tool that is used by NATO, by the United States, to keep these countries uh, chained down through modern day colonialism under the guise of fighting terrorism. Um, and it sounds like uh, the United States, uh, that Ethiopia and Eritrea, from my understanding, uh, don't have AFRICOM um, in those countries. And so I want to, I would like to know your perspective on how AFRICOM plays a role in the crisis that we're seeing and the fight for this region. You know, I think that it, it plays a huge role. And I think this is where Somalia in a big way comes in. I, I mean, I think that for sure, Somalia in some ways is sort of the, the center of U.S. military presence on the African continent. I mean, everyone talks about the base in Djibouti and the other bases across the Sahel, which are significant. But really, Somalia has always been that pivot point. And it's the place where the U.S. can operate the most freely uh, in terms of the broader African continent. And of course, it was the U.S. that deliberately destabilized the country of Somalia in uh, league with Ethiopia in 2007 to create a situation that allowed them to manipulate this key region, but also to create a range of action uh, across the continent based in Somalia. And so I think that what we've seen here with the growth of the unity between the Horn of Africa is Farmajo. And there are many things that can be said about Farmajo, president of Somalia. Uh, perhaps there's an election going on right now. So the president now I think most likely will be the president in the future. One of the big things that Farmajo and his party have really been pushing in the context of greater unity in the horn is that this is also going to help create the security context for the removal of Amazon, or at least the, which is the African Union, but U.S.-backed mission there, um, and also the, the at least the lessening of Amazon. But that really means also probably a lesser role for U.S. troops, for U.K. troops that have a big presence there in Somalia. Certainly would mean that it would be probably a less an environment where they'd be able to move certainly less freely, where they would certainly have less influence. And I'm not going to say they're going to be kicked out 100%, but where at least the possibility of that has been raised. And certainly amongst Farmajo's supporters, that's something they're constantly you know, pushing and saying that should happen, is that the US, the UK, Amazon should all have to leave. Which means that one element of this growing horn of Africa unity, because they're constantly ripping Farmajo now, saying, oh, we sent 3,000 troops to Eritrea to be trained. Um, now, of course, Somalia says, yeah, we sent troops to be trained so that we can fight against al-Shabaab and secure our country and so on and so forth. There's more to be said about that. But the point being, obviously, it's created a perspective where the broader United Horn of Africa may then also become something that uh, a process that helps deny space and control uh, to AFRICOM-based forces or forces that are under the African command in Somalia, which means a big step back 
for the United States on the African continent, because many African countries don't want AFRICOM to be there to the extent they are there. They keep it very secret because in Africa, amongst the masses of people, it's extraordinarily unpopular. And not even just the masses of people, even amongst many countries, even amongst some U.S. allies, they are very, very wary of AFRICOM. They're very wary of uh, the involvement of U.S. forces in African conflicts. The idea of African solutions to African problems um, has become a much bigger talking point, even by, you know, some of the most ridiculous, most corrupt, most pro-U.S. leaders, quite frankly. But it's because the masses of people don't want to see this type of imperialist, neo-colonialist, colonial-style interventions taking place. So to then be pushed out of Somalia, which is one of the places, or even have your position lessened in Somalia, not even be pushed out, which is one of the main places you can kind of do whatever you want to do in terms of the U.S. military, I think is an extraordinarily dangerous possibility. Because for the U.S., and you can see this again in the National Defense Strategy document, they put a huge premium on interoperability, which means they want the U.S. military to be as deeply intertwined with their allies around the world as possible so that they can then use that as a pivot point and a leverage point to control those governments because they have some level of control over the security apparatus of the country. And I think that to ha not have that in Somalia, when they're already losing it in many places across West Africa, or at least it seems to be fraying around the edges. I mean, that's to some degree the roots of what we're seeing in Mali right now, but we're also seeing similar things in a few other countries. I think speaks to the fact that the, the U.S., again, is looking at another reason why this is an extraordinarily dangerous development. The unity, greater unity in the Horn of Africa is it feels like, okay, now, even in one of our, our strongest areas for power projection in the broader African continent, that could be something that's pushed out here, too. And of course, Ethiopia has historically played a big role, not only just destabilizing Somalia under the TPLF, but being sort of a backbone force, um, you know, moving forward in terms of the Amazon security arrangement. So if you have Ethiopia, you have Eritrea, and you have Somalia coming together and saying, maybe we can find a way to solve this ourselves um, without the U.S. being involved. I think that's yet another reason why uh, for Western powers and certainly for the United States, this idea of greater Horn of Africa unity that's being driven by Eritrea, Ethiopia, and Somalia presents a dangerous reality for them in terms of their ability to control the region. Well, unity, I mean, that's like the biggest threat to U.S. hegemony in so many different countries. And look at what happened, what the United States did in, in Syria. Um, it supported Al-Qaeda and a lot of right-wing groups to push a sectarian uh, civil war. Um, and then we have the same thing that the same thing is taking place in Yemen, in Yemen today, where the United States is pushing, um, you know, a sectarian civil war. The same thing in um, in Ukraine, where the United States, you know, backed and armed literal Nazis to overthrow the democratically elected government there. And so, having a unified front of people is like the biggest threat uh, to U.S. imperialism, and it's obviously. Uh, an old colonial tactic of keeping people divided to fight each other while greater powers like the United States and other empires and, you know, Western nations exploit and take control of the resources, the land and the, you know, the economy. And so um, something that I, I, I'm interested in knowing is just how much so is the TPLF acting as a proxy to the United States. I mean, you mentioned this, uh, uh, you know, at the very beginning, how is it acting as a proxy for the United States and what kind of human rights abuses did you see and document uh, in your most recent trip um, to Ethiopia? You know, I think a huge reason why this 
TBLF regime change effort happened is they were 100% aware and, you know, long history ruling the country of Ethiopia, that their long history of doing U.S. bidding in the region would mean that they would gain at least the rhetorical support of the United States and the West. And I mean, you know, it it spans the gamut of so many things. I mean, we've mentioned Somalia, but even at, you know, a, a slightly different level, Ethiopia played a big role behind the scenes at the United Nations to block Venezuela from becoming a member of the U.N. Security Council. I believe this is 2004. It might have been 2006 because the U.S. didn't want a Hugo Chavez-controlled uh, uh, Bolivarian revolution in Venezuela to be able to use the Security Council as a base to critique U.S. imperialism. Ethiopia, which has a lot of influence uh, amongst developing nations for a range of reasons, um, was using that influence to get Guatemala, the hardcore right-wing pro-genocidaire government there, um, on the U.N. Security Council. So it, re- it runs the gamut of different things. They also were encouraging the creation of AFRICOM and saying they thought it was a good development for Africa. So the TPLF has this whole long history as a U.S. proxy. And I think they understood that there is no doubt that the U.S. would say, well, hey, if the TPLF can get back in the game, this is good for us, not bad for us. And that in the context of where the country is going, they will fight for policies inside of Ethiopia and inside the broader horn that will benefit us just like they did for 30 years. And so the TPLF reality is very heavily shaped on that. We've seen that in the statements they've been making, like when the U.S. brought down sanctions uh, on Eritrea, or actually when they were saying they were going to sanction Eritrea, potentially sanction Ethiopia as well. The TPLF was over the moon saying, this is great. This is exactly what we need. So it gives you a sense of how for them, um, you know, the things they want are the same things the U.S. want. So in terms of being there, you know, what we saw And I think what we saw, quite frankly, is a continuation of what was seen for the 30 years of TPLF rule. That's something that's been totally lost, I think, in this context and in the Western media. Maybe maybe this is the biggest thing that the Western media has gotten wrong about this conflict, is that somehow the TPLF are the good guys. I mean, quite frankly, they have a 30-year history of absolutely brutal, absolutely corrupt rule that was, I mean, you know, it became the most unifying factor in the country uh, around people who have many, many different differences. Some people who even have been fighting each other was like the one thing we can agree on is the TPLF is terrible, destroying our country, and they have to go. And I think that that in and of itself is a continuation of what we saw, which was many different things in terms of what people were telling us. I mean, you know, one thing that has been, you know, uh, uh, out there in our coverage is uh, we went to the ancient historic city of Lalibela, and, you know, we were going to this is a tourism is the base of the economy because of the the UNESCO World Heritage Site that's there. The airport totally trashed. Residents were telling us, yeah, the TPLF totally trashed the airport. Well, why would you do that? Well, you're trying to make it harder to rebuild. You're trying to create economic consequences, sort of a, if we can't have it, no one can have it kind of mentality. Then residents actually took us to a health center that had also been trashed. And this is just like a community health center. Who destroys a community health center that has, it has nothing to do with what you say that you're you're there fighting for. Same thing to create the maximum level, and they had already closed it down when they were there, is what people told us. So, but to create the maximum level of of destruction, the maximum level of of suffering, to make it much more difficult to rebuild and and make it much harder for people's lives to to resume in any sort of way. You know, everywhere we went in Amhara State, where we were, um, where a lot of the fighting has been happening. You know, we so many things, so many stories we were told. I mean, of course, uh, some people may have seen the video that Rania, my colleague, Rania Khalik, put out um, interviewing women, Nafis Moja, who were sexually assaulted by TPLF soldiers. We talked to a young man who told us his father had been summarily executed directly in front of him. We went to a village where villagers told us over 100 people, maybe more, had been just randomly massacred. Not randomly massacred. They'd been massacred because they had stood up for themselves and said that they did not want the TPLF to just take over their village. 
village, you know, take their food, take their stuff and do whatever they wanted to do, um, which was something we frequently heard from people is that if they did anything to stand up to the TPLF during the occupation, they were targeted for beatings, for killings. Um, you know, the TPLF is deeply ethnically chauvinist, which is something we also heard from people that they're, you know, one of the things they say the most is this this slur Amharas, comparing Amhara people to donkeys. Um, you know, we heard that a lot of that kind of abuse was being delivered against people when they were being beaten, when they were being assaulted. Uh, they were stealing people's food, trashing people's homes. I mean, there, it's it's really we saw all of that. And these are things that we had heard before. And most of it had been totally whitewashed and not reported at all by the Western media. And to the extent that it had, they were basically acting like these were, were stories and that they were not that credible, quite frankly. But really, we saw a swath of destruction that everyone we talked to said this was the TPLF who was destroying critical infrastructure, beating people, starving people, the, the whole nine yards. So it was a pretty brutal occupation from everything we heard uh, in all of the areas that the TPLF was 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 controlling um, for at least some brief period of time. Well, and, you know, some of these, uh, you know, stories that you're sharing with us about rape and chauvinism and theft and just complete brutality against the people there is basically being set up within the mainstream corporate media from the New York Times to CNN as Ethiopia's civil war. And this is basically being um, used to be pushed for this kind of uh, U.S. intervention. Um, you know, as I said at the very beginning, um, you know, USAID uh, head Samantha Powers, our favorite uh, humanitarian interventionist, um, you know, has said that all options are on the table. And we have, uh, you know, former Supreme Commanders of NATO um, saying that, you know, Ethiopia's civil war is a problem U.S. troops can solve. And so with the United States kind of setting itself up now and kind of creating this pretext uh, that, you know, there's a civil war, there's a humanitarian crisis that we need to intervene in, where do you see U.S. intervention headed towards? Like, do you see a U.S. intervention coming through soon? And do you think it will be, you know, some sort of, you know, Libya-style intervention since the same Obama-era hawks that created Syria that created Libya, that created the crisis in Ukraine. These are the same people now pushing for this U.S. intervention. What are your thoughts on this? I think they'd like a Libya-style intervention. I, I actually think the likelihood of it, though, has gone down quite a bit because the TPLF has really failed on the battlefront to create the conditions to make it possible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they sort of needed two aspects of it. And they got one aspect of it, which was to create sort of a fake narrative about what was going on. And listen, th there's no doubt that there is a lot of suffering happening uh, in Tigray, that the people of Tigray are, are, quite frankly, victims of the TPLF, quite frankly. Uh, but the reality of it is, is uh, you know, as the UN Human Rights Council said there is no genocide there, um, even though there is great suffering. But quite frankly, the whole basis of the suffering is because the TPLF has launched the war. And not only launched the war, they have themselves completely pushed aside many opportunities to have a ceasefire whereby there could have been more humanitarian aid let into the region of Tigray. But all that being said, I think for the U.S., it's a very difficult position. This week, in fact, the, the Undersecretary of State for Africa, Molly Fee, and the new U.S. envoy for the Horn, David Sutterfield, they're going to Addis. You know, Biden called Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, I think, for the first time um, of his presidency, and it was certainly something he'd been avoiding, so it was a big deal. So now the U.S., I think, is trying to change their strategy a little bit because they realize it's totally failed, and that the reality is that the TPLF cannot succeed. I mean, even to call it a civil war, I think in and of itself is, is, is a misnomer by the UN and being used that way by the mainstream media in the US, because quite frankly, almost everyone else in the country 
other than the supporters of the TPLF is 100% against this. And people with many different grievances are 100% united that the TPLF is the main danger and the TPLF has to be defeated. And that this, I would say, has probably brought people in Ethiopia closer together than they've been in some time, you know, in unity against this regime change war that's been launched by the TPLF. And so, you know, when you travel around the country, there are limited areas where there's a lot of negative things happening, but it's basically contained to those areas where the TPLF is trying to fight because everyone else is, is trying to fight them. So, you know, in and of itself, the idea that the country is about to fall apart, that's falling apart at the seams, that, you know, it, it's going to, there's no way that these groups could ever live together, all of that. That to me is a big part of the push for U.S. intervention to, to try to create the perception that there's some sort of out of control chaos, which is, is not the case. But that being said, obviously what the U.S. is trying to do now is to freeze the conflict. And when you look at the statements of U.S. officials, basically what they're saying is that there should be an immediate ceasefire based on current front lines, which also includes territory that the TPLF has seized that is not in Tigray, seized via military action, but be that as it may, that they want to freeze the conflict at the current front lines, that they want that ceasefire to facilitate humanitarian aid into Tigray. Now, certainly I'm all for more humanitarian aid going in if it's actually getting to the people who need it. But what we know about the TPLF is that they've been stealing and ransacking a lot of this aid and using it to boost their military capability. So if you have a ceasefire, and then you have the ability of their troops to become resupplied, to gain a respite, and then you are trying to push the Ethiopian government to negotiate with them, then you have a situation where the U.S. is still trying to leverage, however they can, the possibility to get the TPLF somehow back into the leadership of Ethiopia, somehow back into the game one way or another. So I think that now the threat of intervention, I, I don't think it's passed. But I think it has lessened because I do think that the failure of the TPLF on the battlefield has made it much more difficult to justify. But I think what we can see is that the United States is still trying to find some way to, if they can't have total regime change, at least have some capability of getting their former proxy back into a leadership position somehow, some way in Ethiopia and in the Horn more broadly. And that seems to be where their efforts are directed in a major way right now. But I do think what they would love to see is a regime change in Addis Ababa. I think they definitely are not that happy with uh, Abiy Ahmed and the folks who are there now. And I think certainly moving forward, they will continue to do whatever they can to meddle, to weaken um, the possibilities for more unity in the Horn and certainly to weaken the, the Ahmed government in Ethiopia, or at least to try to bend them to their will, which is a big part of what they're doing right now is offering a lot of inducements and you know playing nice after having backed the TPLF for multiple months, almost a year now, specifically specifically to try to weaken the resolve of people in Ethiopia to try to see if they can get the Ethiopian government to shift back into a 100% pro-U.S. Uh, camp. So Abi, I want to talk about Abi Ahmed because he's a Nobel Peace Prize laureate and he has been in the past described as, you know, a man of peace and change and democracy. And since this recent crisis in Ethiopia, uh, the way the way the in the way the mainstream corporate media has described him has changed and they're kind of more painting him as uh you know as a dictator kind of figure and so i'm curious to know who is the real abi ahmed and what is his relationship and perspective on um, a growing alliance with china mm -hmm. Yeah, Abiy Ahmed is someone who has a long political history in Ethiopia. He was a member of the broader sort of ruling front, um, the EPDRF, that was uh, uh, the sort of TPLF coalition to rule the country. He is of the Oromo people, which is the largest ethnic group in Ethiopia. It's about 35% of the people in the country. And he was representing sort of the Oromo ethnic politics in the broader TPLF regime. He was able to emerge in power because 
the real engine behind a lot of the anti-TPLF protest, even though they went beyond the Oromo people, was the powerful struggle of the Oromo people, millions of people in Oromia, uh, you know, just, just coming out against all odds and protesting and saying that this government has got to go. And it actually caught fire. You had an Amhara region, other parts of the country, people also protesting in solidarity, saying they were with them. And so it became a big engine. And so Abiy Ahmed became the head of the Aromia regional government, basically, after that. And he was seen as a figure who was more conciliatory towards the protesters and towards what people there um, wanted to see anti-TPLF and really put up, you know, he was putting a big focus on economic development in Aromia, uh, at least rhetorically, uh, which was something that the protesters were raising in a big way as well, was unemployment and the lack of opportunity and so on and so forth. So that put him in a position that made it, you know, relatively, uh, made him a, rel- a major politician in the country. And then, of course, uh, ultimately allowed him to put together a, a new coalition that was able to push the TPLF mainly out of power and in the TPLF era. Now, Abiy Ahmed is, there's a lot of different pieces to this. And a lot of this is very contested. And, and, and the history and the contemporary reality of Ethiopia um, can be contested because of the, the long history of different peoples and ethnicities. But Abiy Ahmed, who is an Oromo person, has put forward this new idea of synthesis in Ethiopian national identity. Now, this is a very complicated and complex issue in Ethiopia because Ethiopia as a country is really the product of, of, of a feudal empire. So, and it was then kind of, in a way, the borders sort of frozen by the impact of the original imperialist scramble for Africa. So you have a number of different ethnicities and nationalities inside of Ethiopia, um, many of which have been at odds with each other at different times for differing amounts of time. Um, also a lot of, you know, shared history, shared lineage, shared culture, religion, uh, you know, uh, language scripts, all those kind of things that also, so there's a complex mix of both tension and unity that exists in the country. So the question of what it means to be an Ethiopian has always been a, a, a somewhat contested identity. And most of the governments in Ethiopia have tried to present some form of Ethiopian identity. And the TPLF, though, was the opposite. They basically wanted to act like there was no Ethiopia to make everything super ethnic, to say people are only with their ethnic group and that everything has to be, a, you know, sort of a hyper federal structure, or really not hyper federal, centralized around them, but that ultimately that there could only really be kind of like a federation of ethnicities and that there was no Ethiopian identity. They used to not even want to mention Ethiopia a lot of times in their discourse and conversation, only the ethnic identities, and they really stoked all those flames. So Abiy Ahmed has taken a different position. He's presented a position that is rooted in that front on unity and diversity and trying to bring together all of the different ethnic groups. Now, some people don't like that because they think that's just, you know, the old style of trying to put down, um, you know, the, the, the claims of those who have some historic claims of oppression. I personally myself don't find that to be that true. And I think what we've seen is from Somali state to the southern regions of Ethiopia to the Oromo areas where there's still a contested sort of thing over uh, multiple political forces to Amhara and so on and so forth, that he has been able to create a unity. And we saw in the last elections, you know, tens of billions of people from various ethnicities voted um, for him and the Prosperity Party, I think, for this region around this new concept and idea that there can be a new type of Ethiopian unity. And that's why he's known and was originally known as like a quote unquote peacemaker, because not only did he bring out uh, the TPLF, but then he released 10,000 political prisoners. He starts talking about how we need more unity between all the different ethnicities, how we need an idea of Ethiopia that values, you know, what everyone brings to the table and so on and so forth. So, you know, that was sort of one piece of what he is doing. And then 
economically, uh, you know, he was pushing sort of, a, a, you know, what's known as a quote unquote liberalization. I mean, I think there's a lot of sort of different pieces to that. I think that's in some ways an oversimplification. Um, you know, in Ethiopia prior to this, every single thing was run by the state to some degree. And there was very, very limited private business. And to the extent there was, it was all controlled by these huge TPLF corporations. So it was really not that much in terms of a you know, marketplace or whatever. So it is true that he is pushing liberalization in certain areas, but you know, they're also pushing hundreds of thousands of farmers to form cooperative farms to build food sovereignty. So I think there's a sort of a complex thing there. In his book, Abhi Ahmed, it's kind of a third way book, uh, sort of, you know, not capitalism, not socialism, which I think, you know, is, is you can't, you got to go one way or the other. But nevertheless, I think that's kind of the, the sort of economic piece that he's trying to put out there as well. So you've got this guy who has come in to the, the, the prime ministership of Ethiopia. He's saying, let's open up the political space, at least somewhat. Let's have unity with all of our regional uh, countries to sort of have shared prosperity among all of us, who is saying, let's try to see if we can find a way to bring together amongst all the differences, different people in Ethiopia. Um, and that's sort of the core of, of, of what he's bringing to the table and where he's coming from. Also in the context of saying, you know, let's open up the economic space as well. And let's have more space, you know, for the quote unquote free market and things like that. So, you know, I think for people who are, are socialist oriented, his economic philosophies are at best a mixed bag. Uh, and I think at worst, deeply misguided and not the type of thing that can empower a developing nation. I think his his ethnic and, and, and diversity based ideas, you know, and people have roasted me for this uh, all across the Internet. But I tend to think that there's a lot to recommend what he's saying um, around unity as opposed to division and the old divide and conquer politics of colonialism right. moving forward in the 21st century. And I think obviously there's a huge amount to recommend regional unity in the Horn of Africa, which is the only which is really the basis for there to be true prosperity in all of those nations is for them to combine their economic, social, and human resources in order to find a way to jointly develop and rise um, as much as they can and, and lift from the bottom and rise everyone to the top. So, you know, I, I think that there's a lot to be said about Abiy Ahmed. And, and, you know, I think he's a, and I don't want to say he's a complex figure, because I think what he's trying to do is actually pretty clear. Um, but I think in the context of you know, global imperialism in the 21st century. He's the type of figure that is dangerous to the United States, not necessarily because he's promoting an ideology that's like anti-capitalist or anti-West, but because he's willing to promote an idea of independence and national sovereignty and both regional and national unity that speaks uh, towards the lessening of U.S. hegemony in a crucial region. And like I said before, whether we're talking about Latin America, whether we're talking about Iran, whether we're talking about Asia, countries with many different ideas and philosophies, Obviously, the U.S. is deeply concerned that they are losing hegemony in key regional areas. Um, and this is another one that I think they're deeply concerned about. Absolutely. And we'll be continuing to follow the crisis there, the conflict there, and the potential for um, U.S. intervention there. I hope that there will not be an intervention. Um, but you just never know um, with the same Obama-era war hawks that brought us so many conflicts back now in office and back in the military. Um you know, we'll just we're going to keep our eyes out on on this crisis. And thank you so much, Eugene, for your coverage at Breakthrough News about this issue. Um, you know, I've learned so much from you in this conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.